Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. We are carrying on bringing you the big fish. So we have here as our guest, the original co-founder of Netflix. You heard it right, Netflix. So his name is Mark Randolph. He's an American entrepreneur. You could call him a serial entrepreneur, which we talk about in the episode, of course. He's most famous for Netflix. Netflix was one of his seven startups that he's done, I believe. Major um, player in the 90s for scaling Netflix up, which is now estimated to be worth 9.6 billion US dollars. Um, We talk about why he left Netflix, which I think is very intriguing and interesting. This goes way beyond Netflix, but we do talk quite a lot about Netflix, too. Um, And I think you're going to love it. It got really good views when we went live on it, like double any views I've had um, on a video of that kind for a long time. So remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Here we go with the original co-founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur video and audio podcast. I'm very excited today because we have uh, Mark Randolph, who is the original co-founder of Netflix. He's described as a serial entrepreneur. I'm going to ask him his definition of that uh, in a moment. Um, Mark, I just want to say thanks a lot for giving your time today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. No problem at all. And where, where are you right now? Where are you in the world I'm in Santa Cruz, California, little uh, seaside town about an uh, hour and a half south of San Francisco. And is that your home? That, um, you, uh, you were talking to me in my office. So, yes, <laughs> my home. Actually, this is a bit of a random one, Mark, but we, when we just turned the cameras off, we were fascinated. So the background is blurred. Is that because you've got a brilliant camera that's focused on you or is that because you don't want the camera to see the background of your house? <laughs> Uh, I think Barry, both of those are a little bit of a benefit. Yeah. Okay. A lot, a lot less effort into going to cleaning things up. Put it that way. That's very true. <laughs> right. Um. So one thing I'd be fascinated to ask you, Mark, is um, how was the idea for Netflix born? Do you remember a day, a moment, a meeting, an idea where it kind of all started? You know, I can't believe I can't believe as a disruptive entrepreneur you're asking that question because <laughs> you know. It, Everybody always wants that like epiphany story, you know, the the idea that changed everything or the moment that it all became clear. And you, of all people, should know it doesn't happen like that, that these things take place over weeks or months or years sometimes and that it's not one person. It's lots of people each contributing little bits of themselves. But if you have if there was a. Um, uh, an inciting event, as we say it in screenwriter speak, um, it probably happened in uh, 1997 uh, when I got fired from a job. Uh, or fired is the wrong word. It was an acquisition that took place. And 
uh, I realized I'd have about six months on my hand while I was getting paid, while my stock options were vesting, while I had an office, and I could use that time to start another company. And the company that I was working for that was being acquired was a company founded by a guy named Reed Hastings, who figures pretty prominently in the story. Uh, and he also was losing his job. And so we came to this agreement that I would use the time to start um, my next company. Uh, Reed would be the angel investor. And away we'd go. Um, and so we began brainstorming ideas. So this took place during a car ride, during commuting, going back and forth uh, between our home in Santa Cruz, because Reed lives here in Santa Cruz as well, uh, and our office in Silicon Valley. And we did probably hundreds of idea ideas in that in the car. Uh, ridiculous ones like um, customized shampoo or personalized dog food. Um, we had one to make uh, to do these personalized baseball bats. Um, and even a, even a crazier idea, which was maybe we could do video rental by mail. Uh, and this was crazy because there was a blockbuster in every corner back then. And video came on. I don't know if, you know, let's see, look at you. Yeah, maybe you were alive then. Uh, VHS cassettes, those big and heavy and expensive devices. So that idea got abandoned, too. So this inciting event, if anything, happened one afternoon, one morning, actually, when uh, we were commuting to work. And Reed mentioned this new technology called a DVD, which was for movies. You know, it was thin and light and small. And the light bulb went off. And we said, maybe this allows us to dust off that old video rental by mail idea we had a few months ago. And so we turned the car around, went back down to Santa Cruz and bought uh, a music CD because there were no DVDs then. And we bought a little gift envelope and we addressed it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz and mailed it to him. And it got to the house in about less than 24 hours for the price of a first class stamp. And that kind of became the missing puzzle piece so that we thought it would make video rental by mail work. All right. So... I feel like that was a bad question, but a good answer. So I'm glad I asked it. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's true because people, you know, but the thing is, it's not unreasonable to have an epiphany story because, you know, luckily in this scenario, I have time to tell a bit more about it. And as you'll hopefully hear, you know, DVD by mail ended up being a terrible idea. It didn't work very well. Um, because, but people don't want to hear that. You know, their eyes glaze over. They want that quick and catchy little explanation. And so you come up with a shorthand, something which is a good story and it captures the emotional truth of what you're trying to do. And so just saying, oh, it came about because of a late fee on a movie is a nice, elegant way to say it, even though, of course, it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of the story. Well, I'll tell you what fascinates me because I think... Uh, conversations like this where we've got time, where you don't have to do the soundbite and it's not for media release, etc. It means you can get the truth. And um, there's no harm in your business idea being your fifth favourite idea or your 12th favourite idea or an idea that you did three years ago. The point was it was one of your ideas, not top of the list. And then when the opportunity presented itself, because you had lots of ideas and you went through the ideation process, because 
for someone, you and Reid, to go through 100 ideas together, that says something about you as entrepreneurs, that you're prepared to spitball a load of ideas. So actually, I think it's... Um, I think the fact that we don't have an epiphany moment is better because it's more real to life about what happened. And, and the, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, a, a good idea is usually indistinguishable from a thousand other bad ideas. And the interesting thing here is we came up with an idea for video rented by mail back when there was just VHS. And I spent, you know, a bunch of days doing that research and looking at the market size and looking at what it would take to build a website. And it was only after I did the research and what it cost to ship a big, heavy VHS and what they cost that I realized that's a bad idea and we abandoned it. But if I hadn't done all that pre-work, well, then two months later when the DVD arrived, I would have just gone, oh, that's kind of cool, a new way to watch movies. But I, in, instead, it was like when you're, when you're uh, in your house and you look under the couch and you find that missing piece from the jigsaw puzzle. And you go, oh, I know exactly where this goes. Um, and it allowed us to plug it in. And, and if the first thing hadn't happened, I doubt the second thing would have meant anything to us at all. I also think what's interesting is create a load of ideas, Pick one, but it, you weren't really keen. Well, it wouldn't work at first. You dismiss it. You pick it later. It's mailing DVDs, but actually it's not mailing DVDs anymore. It became streaming. Then it's not even streaming really anymore. It's kind of content. So there's <laughs> so many different iterations of that company that is now obviously huge and famous that wouldn't have happened with a process of, I don't want to use the technical Sil Silicon Valley terms. I'll try and stay away from those. But of course, of the iterative process, approach, or at least the desire to continually improve and to um, pivot and move with the times in a business model. So it sounds like it's a very liquid process as opposed to it being fixed. Would that be right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, you know, I, I've now been out of Netflix for 15 or 16 years, and I've spent all that intervening time working with hundreds um, of other early stage companies. And I'm convinced there's no such thing as a good idea. They all suck. Every idea you hear is a bad one. And, and you have, once you accept that, that's fine. Because then your job is just to figure out why it's a bad idea. And in the process of trying your bad idea, sometimes you get this little glimmer of hope as to why it might be a good, what might lead to the next experiment and the next experiment and the next experiment. And you're right. I mean, you, you identified, you know, three big zigzags in the Netflix story, but there was actually a thousand little zigzags in the Netflix story. We were constantly experimenting. It took, you know, I told you that the original DVD by mail idea, which had due dates and had late fees and was a la carte, was terrible. Nobody wanted to do it. It took us 18 months of iteration and testing to finally stumble on the model that actually actually worked. Why do you think it took so long? If you think about it, no one liked the late fees. No one liked returning the DVDs, but it took quite a long time, didn't it? Or did it, it did, because who know? You know, originally we thought that the thing that was going to work was purely the fact that we had a better way of finding movies. You know, that we had basically almost unlimited ways of displaying content and combining content and recommending content. And we thought somehow that would be more compelling than the experience in a video store. Now, we also thought the fact that we had a big head start because at the time, 
DVD was brand new, so video stores didn't carry it. And we thought those two things might be enough to jumpstart a video business. But the problem is, uh, you're right, there was due dates and late fees, and so no one wanted it. And we had to come up with a whole new model. And the one that we eventually found, which was you know, a subscription, so doing it, billing bill by the month. But the bigger innovation was there was we did this no due date, no late fees model where people could take the DVDs they wanted and keep them for as long as they wanted. They let sit in their television. And when they're ready to watch it, you plug it in, watch it, and then you mail it back to us and we automatically ship another one. That's a crazy, never been done before thing. And to think that I might have come up with that on day one is ludicrous. It took a long, long time and lots of experimentation to get to that. It's, it's funny um, thinking about this because I think a lot of people think companies like, say, Blockbuster or Kodak or other famous companies that didn't pivot with the times and kind of you know went a bit extinct, if you like. They should have seen it coming. Why didn't they see it coming? They had loads of time to see it coming. And I was listening to Total Rethink, which is a book by David McCourt, who's becoming a friend of mine. He's a billionaire who I interviewed on my podcast. And he says that a lot of companies, when they're um, more mature, they hold on very tight to the way it's done because they, they've got so much to lose. They don't want to take the risks of the young guns because they can't. Um, and so they have this almost fallacy that the way we do it is better or they hold on to it or they're delusional about the way the market is changing. Did you find that with uh, Blockbuster? I think that's completely true. I mean, certainly we sit with Blockbuster, but I'm in a total agreement with him that that is exactly what brings down all these big companies. And in Blockbuster's case, you know, they did see it coming and they did recognize how powerful a model would be of online plus stores. And quite frankly, at Netflix, we were terrified they would respond that way because that would have crushed us. But they were in this situation, they were a $6 billion in revenue company. So even though they might have said, wow, it'd be kind of nice to have an online business, they certainly weren't going to put their A-team on it. They were going to leave their A-team on the business, which is bringing in $5.99 billion. And why would they put some of their best people on a business which at its best day could have been a million dollars a year? And that was the best day. So they kept waiting and waiting. And of course, as soon as they began going direct, all of their all their franchisees would panic. And and the same thing happens with every big company. They, they, they see where it's coming, but they're locked in. They can't risk that revenue. Yeah. Why couldn't they set up a little Google X type company, a little silo company, a little playful company over here, stick a team on it? And why, why wouldn't they do that? Well, they eventually did do that. Uh, but it was too late. They took a team and they put them in a separate building and they gave them a budget and said, go after these guys. And and it was pretty scary because they did a reasonable – this is now their fourth or fifth try. But this one was serious and it actually was a pretty compelling offering. And at some months, they were actually doing more in new customer acquisition than we were. But Blockbuster had other problems going on. You know, they also had financial pressures. They were in the midst of a kind of a hostile takeover business. It, it, so they were distracted, which was another. I mean, listen, so many of these things are not just the skill and talent of the entrepreneur. They're lucky breaks. And Netflix certainly had a share of lucky breaks. And one of which was the fact that DVD took off at all because it could have gone the way of the laser disc. But it also were lucky that Blockbuster didn't respond and was uh, 
very distracted. Mm, that's a good point because people don't, back to your comment about looking for the epiphany or the story moment, people don't think about that. They think, oh, Netflix, it disrupted and that's the common thing. But um, a company being distracted, having shareholders, if they did, having their own business problems, their own challenges, because um, people just assume they weren't quick enough. But by from what you're saying, they were quick enough. They just didn't figure out a way to do it as well as you. Yeah, right in the midst of their competition, all of a sudden, um, there was someone who was kind of doing a takeover, not a takeover, but a green mail where they bought the stock and then threatened and they had to buy that person out. And then ultimately they said, we can't afford to put the cash on this. And they pulled the plug. I mean, there's a lot of lucky, lucky, lucky breaks. But, you know, part of the reason I wrote that, wrote the book, you know, that will never work is to show that this was not something that just sprung forth overnight, fully formed. You know, that will never work is about these first critical three or four years and all the things you have to do. And the fact that we weren't a big company, we were a tiny little startup. Um, it tries to show how something like this actually comes to be. So I've, I've probably pulled out three or four more things I want to ask you, which means I'm probably not going to ask you some of the things I already put on my list, which is what I like to do, being disruptive, Mark. <laughs> but so now for, I'd like to go and talk about your book because you've just mentioned that. So this will be a good time. So I love the title, by the way. I think that title says so many things in four words. I feel like it's a stroke of genius of simplicity. So my first question before we talk about the content of the book is, did that just come to you or did you spend a long time ideating what the title would be? <laughs> uh, we spent a long time ideating about what the title should be. And because originally uh, what I wanted to call the book was Nobody Knows Anything, which is a quote from a screenwriter named William Goldman uh, talking about Hollywood that no one has any idea before a movie comes out how well it's going to do until after it's done it. And that startups are the same way. It's, if anyone who tells you that's a bad idea or a good idea hasn't a clue because no one, no one knows until it's done it. But a book title, as I'm learning and as I learned, um, is collaborative because there's a lot of stakeholders. I mean, there's myself, there is my publisher. Uh, we are being published multinationally simultaneously. So you have other countries who weigh in. Um, and but I fought pretty strongly for that will never work because in some ways it says the same thing, but it's which as nobody knows anything, which is, listen, if they were telling me that will never work about Netflix, it just goes to show that nobody really knows that you never have any idea until you try it. And in many ways, this book is about trying it. OK, so I'm really glad you called it That Will Never Work. I'm, I've written a few books. I've got a publisher. I understand about the collaborative effect. I'm not going to say I'm the genius of all book titles, but um, nobody knows anything is a bit of a seems like a paradox for a book title because it does, doesn't tell me what it's going to teach me. But I know you <laughs> said I know you said that that will never work. It's kind of saying the same thing, but it's not, I don't think, because people always say to you that will never work. So I didn't read it like no one knows anything. I read it like everyone always telling me that will never work. That will never work. That will never work. That just makes me want to go and do it even more. And that's how <laughs> but, I read the title. But in some ways, it, it, I, I'm not going to argue whether it's the, the same or not. But there's a message here that 
most people, everyone has ideas. I mean, everyone does. Mm. And so many people are blocked from their idea. And it could be themselves thinking, oh, that'll never work. I can't try it. But a lot of the time, it's someone they think is in a position of authority. You know, the person, they, they come downstairs and tell their spouse and they go, that'll never work. Or they go to school, oh, that'll never work. And they go, oh, I guess it won't. And I'm really trying to tell people it might. Yeah. And the only way to find it out is to try it. Mm. You have to take that next step. But if you just sit there thinking about it, nothing will happen. Yeah. So you basically said, um, look, no one really knows anything. A company never ends up, or not never is the wrong word, but often a company doesn't end up um, where it started. There's often lots of iterations and pivots and most ideas, if not all ideas, are bad ideas to start with. And I like those as anti-concepts, if you like. I certainly agree with a lot of that. What would you say, therefore, is are the concepts of your book or your work or your belief as a mentor then um, in, in the more positive, affirming way of how we can be successful? Yeah, so my... You know, I, I wrote this book because I wanted it in some ways to be kind of the untold story of Netflix. Though this, it's not just a late fee in a movie, but what really goes into starting a company. But that's really only a small part of it. And that's really just the message for entrepreneurs or business people. But the cool thing, at least to me, is that over the last 15 years, I've been working with all these early stage companies and more importantly, working with younger people, people who are still in the university, is you begin to realize that the exact same things that I've learned over 40 years as an entrepreneur are the exact same things that anybody can use to take their idea and make it real. That it's good for almost anything, that it unlocks you, that it gives you this chance to step ahead. Mm. And, and that's what I wanted the book to really be about. So it's about these steps. How do you know if it's a, how do you start figuring out if it's a good idea or not a good idea? How do you get people to help you with your idea? But it's not a how-to book. I wanted to show how it really worked in practice. How somebody who in many ways, you know, is is less well educated, is less prepared, potentially even less hard working than most people, can still make it happen. Mm. Okay, so I know it's not a how-to book, but it would be good to get some of those steps. I think you okay. mentioned, I mentioned a couple of them, which is great, but you know, what are the things you've learned in all your vast experience of companies, which we'll come to in a moment, okay. that, that you think you could all hand right. on to other people? All right, so the first one, of course, is you need to have this propensity to action, that most people, when they get this idea, they fall in love with their idea and they begin embellishing it in their head. So it starts out simple enough, but they're imagining it and going, oh, wow, just think once it has a couple thousand people, then I can do this and then it'll have 10,000. I can do this. And I call it building a castle in your head. Mm. And eventually this little simple idea ends up being this ornate structure with turrets and gargoyles and landscaped property. And then, of course, it is too hard to start. Then it does take lots of money and lots of people. The thick trick, when Reed and I realized that DVD might be one way to unlock video rental by mail, we didn't rush to the office and write a business plan. We didn't rush home and put together a pitch deck. We immediately said, how can we test this? Let's just mail one to ourselves. And we turned the car around and did it. Mm. 
And if you don't take those first steps, you never start. And, and the real skill these days for an entrepreneur is not how good your idea is. It's how clever you are, how creative you are at figuring out a cheap and easy and fast way to immediately learn. Mm. So that's one. Okay. I'll give you a second one. Okay. Another principle that I'm a big believer in is focus. And at Netflix, we used to refer to this as the Canada principle. Because for many, many years, we were only available in the United States. And people would always come to us and go, why don't you expand to Canada? That's an instant, easy 10% pop. And what we realized is that it was not going to be an easy, that what seemed simple wasn't. There was currency issues, there was language issues. But the more important thing is that by taking that effort, that it would have taken us to get into Canada and just double down in our core business, it would be a much more than 10% pop. So it's focus. Um, and in many ways, it's also triage because in a startup, there's a hundred things that are broken. So many things are on fire. And if you try and put all those fires out, you're going to spend 1% of your effort on a hundred things. It's so much more powerful to put 100% of your effort on a singular thing. But you've got to have this intuition about what's the right thing, because it's rarely the thing that's screaming out the loudest. Mm -hmm. And again, it's one of the skills of picking the thing that if you get that one thing right, all the rest of the problems don't matter. And, and have you got any tips on fight, picking the right thing in the world of so many distractions? Because you said intuition which you build up over many years of running many companies like you have, Mark. But are there any ways that we can develop that skill of picking the right thing? So most people are going to have a gut about what is the critical thing, but they get distracted by what they think has to get finished. And for example, in an early stage company, there's almost always only two things that matter. One is money. And number two is getting customers. And usually you don't need to do both of those at the same time. And you certainly don't need to have a great experience. You don't need to look good. You don't need to be polished. You don't need PR unless it's customer focused. It's there's a singular thing you do that gets you flow. And that's almost always where to start. And people don't because they, they care too much about other peripheral factors. They're doing things like working on their benefits or they're working on, I mean, it's crazy the stuff I hear. Yeah. I call it uh, selling the t-shirts. That if in a pitch to me, someone even verges into the, and then when we're successful, we will. You know, <laughs> I immediately know that they're not focused yeah. because they should be spending all their time on the getting to that point, not on what happens once they get there. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Mark. So. Um, some things that came up, which I think are really interesting. One was ideas, because you started talking a lot about that. And another one I just wrote in a box was speed. So we'll start with speed. How important do you think speed is in business? A lot of people are saying that speed and first to market is really important. Of course, everything's traveling information-wise at the speed of light now through fiber optics. So we can do things a lot quicker. We can crowdsource quicker. We can test ideas quicker online in communities. How important is speed? Or can you sometimes rush too much? Um, let's see. I, I don't believe speed for speed's sake counts. It's much more important to get it right. 
um, in my opinion. I mean, just as a perfect example, uh, you know, Netflix, like I said, was in was domestic for a long, long, long time. And we see people do or coming up, like, for example, in the UK, doing exactly what we're doing, pretty much a blatant copy. And of course, the temptation is let's get there. And they go, no, let's our model's not right in the United States yet. We still have so much more to learn here. There's plenty of time to come over and, uh, and do Netflix in the UK, for example. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, uh, I am a believer. I won't call it speed, but I'll say learning quickly. Uh, and not, not because I'm saying go fast. I'm just saying don't waste time polishing things. Mm. Just throw something up quickly um, to learn quickly. But it's not hurry, hurry, hurry. It's don't waste time polishing things. Yeah. The, the difference between when I started Netflix 22 years ago and now is you can do things so much faster. You know, back then there wasn't the cloud. So if you wanted to do a website, you had to build your own uh, ability to serve pages. Mm. You had to have your own servers and you didn't have a place to put them. You had them in your office. You had to do your own redundancy. I mean, all that stuff had to be in yourself. And so to test something took a long time. You know, now you can take the idea for Netflix and test it in an hour. And so you should, Mm. but not, don't try and do it in 10 minutes. That's not I don't see any advantage in 10 minutes versus an hour versus a day versus a week even. Yeah. So you're saying, I guess, leverage the speed that we've already got behind us with technology, but don't do things too fast. Yeah. Being first to market, I don't think really matters. No. Uh, It's, you know, these opportunities come up and most of the stuff you're trying, no one's done before anyway. Mm. So you're going to be first. And it's, it's all execution. You know, that's 99.9% of it. Uh, Being first with a bad execution doesn't count for anything. Sure. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Um, So ideas. You talked a lot about ideas and, you know, many ideas or all ideas are not great. Um, So how do you come up with ideas? Because I, I liked what you said earlier and you said everyone has good ideas. And I think there are a lot of people that don't believe they're ideas kind of people. And I completely dismiss that. I think everyone, like you said could come up with lots of ideas. I just think they don't know how. So you might, do you have like a, could we reverse engineer and get in your brain and work out how you come up with lots of ideas? Absolutely. It's pretty easy. And the first thing I'll say is that you said lots of people have good ideas. I didn't say that. I said lots of people have ideas mm. because remember, I don't believe there's any such thing as a good idea. I get an idea as an idea and you only find out if it's a good idea after you've collided it with a real person. Mm-hmm. In, in your head, there's no way of knowing. Asking someone, there's no way of knowing. The only way to figure out if it's good or bad is to try it. So that doesn't beg the question, where do you start? Mm. And uh, the people like myself in some ways who do it for a living do have a lot of techniques. Um, you know, there's, you know, looking at taking new business models and applying them to old businesses or looking at new technologies that have opened up new opportunities. But there's an easy, easy, easy way that I believe every single person can use. And I, I teach this method. And it's simply that you've got to train yourself to look for pain, to see the world um, as an imperfect place. Uh, and once you've kind of recognized how flawed the world is, 
all of a sudden ideas almost instantaneously flood in. So you start by saying, what's frustrating to me? And you almost can't help it. You get this, what would happen if that just pops into your head? And then the trick is to learn how to capture that and immediately say, how could I try that? And not try it in a finished method, not try it in a repeatable or scalable method, but try it in a way that just quickly validates whether the idea has any merit. Hmm. Okay, that's great. I've not heard it answered like that before. I really like that. Um, so back to Netflix, if, if that's all right. So there's two things. Because you said in your book you wanted to tell the untold story of Netflix. So could you summarize what the untold story of Netflix is, please? That Netflix was not a preordained success. Netflix was not uh, some division of a multi-billion dollar conglomerate. That when we started, we were in a we had no money. We were in a crappy old bank building that with just dirty green carpet that we had a safe in the corner. We stored our DVDs in the safe that we couldn't afford furniture. We had to bring things in from home. We had beach chairs um, that there was at the beginning. It was a scrappy startup. And the other thing I want to share is that untold process that it wasn't like all of a sudden uh, I said, hey, maybe we should do a video. And Reed said, well, let's do our own content and begin streaming it. That those ideas were formed slowly through experimentation and trial and error. Mm. That there was dozens of times where we came really close to going out of business. Yeah. That there's this un there was all these lucky breaks that took place. That you know we, 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 tried, we tried to sell ourselves to Blockbuster. And luckily, they laughed at us. <laughs> that Amazon wanted to buy us, and we said no. That all these places, it could have gone a different direction. And I think in many ways that that's the untold story of Netflix. Okay, thank you. Um, and why are you not there anymore? So I have purposefully not said, why did you leave? Because I'd just like you to tell the story as it happened. But why are you not there anymore? What happened? Well, as I hope you've picked up from just this brief time we've uh, been doing this, is that I'm, I love that early stage of companies. I love the fact where you come in and there's no obvious path, where your job is to figure it out, to find that missing puzzle piece, to sit around this table with really smart people solving really complicated, interesting problems. And one of the things, if you're lucky, you figure out about yourself is what am I good at and what do I love doing? And I was fortunate that I found out pretty early in my career that I loved that early stage struggle. Like Netflix, as I mentioned, was my sixth startup. Mm. And I will modestly say I've become pretty good at it. And Netflix eventually did begin to grow up. I mean, we did have an IPO six years in and we were all of a sudden had some scale and we had a repeatable business model and we were able to attract these unbelievably talented people to come work for us. And so even though I realized at that point after the IPO that I still loved the company, you know, it was like a child and I, I wanted to right wrongs and fight its battles. But I also kind of came to the realization that I didn't necessarily love the problems that I was solving anymore. And quite frankly, that I wasn't very good at it. 
And I decided this is probably, if I really want to be successful, I should be doing the things that I love to do. And I don't think those things are at Netflix anymore. And so I began this almost year-long process, year-and-a-half-long process of gradually working my way out of a job. Hmm. And now, now I've really, you know, now for the last 15 years, I'm the luckiest guy you'll probably ever meet in terms I do get to spend my days every day solving really hard problems with really smart people. I get to do the thing that I'm good at and that I really love doing. Thank you. And I'd actually written as one of my questions, although just a statement really for then you to talk about, because I'd put here so many startups um, and you said Netflix was your sixth. I guess you've done a lot more since. So um, you kind of already answered it. But um, when people say serial entrepreneur, I'm not sure they understand the definition. I feel like out of many people I've met, that would define you quite well. Um, because you've had so many startups. So do you just want to talk about serial entrepreneurship and and why so many startups? You know, it's like being a, a, a carpenter. You have a set of skills, and a, a person who's a carpenter or works in construction, they can't build a house, and then they finish building the house, and then they go off and do some brain surgery, <laughs> or they go off and sell some insurance. They go, okay, that was fun. Okay. And then all of a sudden they go off, let's build another house. Mm. And for me, it's always been obvious that that was the fun part was having these ideas in your head and you can't stop them from coming. I mean, it's equivalent to you're walking down the street and you see a little box with a puppy in it and you look around and go, why is there a puppy here by itself? And where's the owner? And oh, this poor guy, he must be hungry. And you can't help but pick it up and take it home. And ideas are like that. You can't abandon them. They wedge their way in their in your head and they consume you. And the only way to put out that fire is, oh, okay, let's try, let's give it a shot. Yeah. Um, and that happens once after the other. And blissfully, startups don't last that long. Either they hit it, you know, and Netflix certainly hit it. Uh, six years in, seven years in, hit it. Uh, my most recent company, Looker, uh, a data analytics company, that took about six years, but that hit it. But some of them don't. Some of them go two years, a year. And, you go, okay, in some ways, you're sad to see it go. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, this is awesome. Because mm. I have these other six ideas I want to try. Yeah. So how many I, startups have you been involved in, Mark? Uh, I've been an operator. There's a Silicon Valley term, but I don't like that one either. Um, I've been an operator in seven. Yeah. Uh, and But the thing is, once I left Netflix, I kind of said to myself, whoa there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I might be time to maybe try and find a model which is a little less intense. Meaning, you know, doing startups is you're kind of all in. You don't necessarily work all the time because I do work really hard at having balance, but intellectually you're all in. You're thinking about it all the time. You're responsible. Um, And once I left Netflix, I said, I'm not sure I want to do another startup. But once you have that compulsion, once you can't help but pick the puppy up, um, you need to feed that addiction. And the way that I've done that in the last 15 years is I work with other early stage companies. I'm a mentor 
to help other people make their ideas go real. So I've had seven where I'm an operator really hands-on in charge or almost in charge, but I've had probably a dozen where I do what I was called deep mentoring, where I spend some enough time that I can really know the entrepreneurs, know the founders, know their partners, know their board, know their employees, know their product, their competition, because you need to be that deep if you're going to give, I'm not going to say advice, if you're really going to help someone in a meaningful way, other than pattern recognition, superficial advice, you really are trying to emulate that feeling you get when it's your company of coming in. And as I've said already, where you sit around the table with smart people and get to help solve really hard problems. And you can't do that unless you really understand the hard problem. Sure. Okay. So I'd actually put on here um, your mentoring work as one of the things I want to talk about. So that's a great way to move into it. So I'm going to try and think a bit more like you, Mark, be inspired by this interview. So what I would normally ask is, what are the traits of the successful companies you've mentored? But I'm going to flick it the other way and put the problem solving head on. What are the mistakes and pains that are common that you see in startups? And then what's the solution to those? Uh, so obviously it is one size fits all. Is not one size fits all, pardon me. Um, and they're all different. But I'd say one of the things that was surprising to me is that when you, you expect, when you, at the beginning, you, when you expected, I expected when I came in to work with a company, you know, and I date them for a long time before I agree to do this because I want to understand, make sure there's a fit. But I expected that most of the questions would be and most of the work would be about, well, how do we focus and how do we iterate more quickly or how do we test more simply? But in reality, probably three quarters of the things that uh, early stage founder struggles with are interpersonal things. In many ways, the job of being a mentor is not far off from being a marriage counselor <laughs> in that in that these people are, I mean, some of these young people are so smart, but they're so early in their career and they're trying to build a board, but not only have they not been in a, never run a board meeting, they've never even been in a board meeting. So how do you help someone find a board member? How do you help them resolve conflicts with their co-founders? How do you help them establish balance with their, the rest of their life? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the types of problems that come up more frequently than not, because people don't recognize they're all in, that they're yeah. in some ways married to their co-founders, mm-hmm. that they have these weird, lonely moments because they can't be fully forthcoming, forthcoming with their board. They can't be fully forthcoming with their employees. They can with their peers. Their peers don't really know the problems. And so you play a very, very different role than uh, I expected to play. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, I certainly find that I run a company. We have about 85 staff in the office, and I definitely find that keeping the staff happy um, is one of the, the things that takes a lot of the time. Uh, and also is a very worthy thing to do when you might be thinking about product or uh, customers or cash, but people is huge. That brings me on to your, my next thing, which I've written in a box, because you, you said this word. I'd love to discuss this balance. So you said you, and forgive me if I'm paraphrasing, but you, know, you try and maintain some balance because you can be intellectually all in on a company. So how do you define balance? 
And what does that look like to you? So balance is obviously is a personal thing. But what I mean by that is that very few people are fully fulfilled by their work. I mean, I love what I do. I love those intellectually challenged. But if I was all of my part of my life for me, speaking purely for myself, that would be very shallow. And I really have realized and I'm, also, I'm 61, so I've had a chance to figure some of this shit out. <laughs> but um, one is I know I love the intellectual challenges of the business and the starting up and helping people get their ideas to be real. That's a big one. But the second part of it for me is I love connecting with people. I mean, my family, you know, I'm still married to the same woman. She's still my best friend. I have three kids and it's very important to me to have a deep relationship with my kids and spend time doing fun things with them. I mean, uh, going for long runs with my younger son, who I just did yesterday before. That's that's the coolest thing in the world. And there's a third component, though, for me, which is my happy place is uh, in the outdoors. So you climbing. Um, or whitewater, whitewater rafting or mountain biking or backcountry skiing or, you know, if it's outside and there's a chance of physical injury, I'm in. <laughs> um, and I call that, it's not my term, but I call it feeding the rat mm. because you do this crazy multi-day climb and you come back and you go, oh, I'm just ready to chill and drink coffee and relax. But then a couple of days later or a week or a month, you can feel it gnawing at you. Yeah. The rat is in there going, come on, come on. We got to get outside and do this again. And you got to feed the rat. Mm. Um, <laughs> and doing those things, it isn't like you can go, oh, OK, I've got a, I got 20 minutes. So I'm going to go out and do, go bag a peak. Doesn't happen. Yeah. You've got to plan well in advance. How am I going to fit the time to be off the grid for 72 hours? while I'm running a very fast-paced, hard company. And that only happens if you work at it. Mm. And the same thing. For example, I vowed early on I was not going to be one of those entrepreneurs who was on his sixth startup and his sixth wife. And so we had this tradition <laughs> in my that every Tuesday, without fail, at 5 p.m., I left the office and my wife and I did a date night. And at first, when you announce that's what's going to happen, everyone goes, yeah, 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 sure. And but I was serious that if there was a crisis, well, we're going to resolve it by five. Yeah. OK, you have to talk to me. Great. On the way to the car. And a fantastic things happens is after you've done this for six, seven, eight weeks, pretty soon everyone goes, Mark's serious about this. Mm. And they stop asking. And then an even better thing happens because what you're doing is you're modeling culture. You're not just getting up front and saying our company stands for balance and then being a workaholic. I was saying, listen, balance is important. And I was modeling for people that I really believe it. And yeah. so then they all begin taking date nights. Yeah. And that is the best possible scenario. Mm. I think that's great. So um, if it's OK with you, I'll do some quick, quicker fire questions, Mark. Is that all right? Uh, go ahead. Shoot. Yep. Um, so maybe we're 10 minutes or so left. I mean, look, you can answer them as long as you like. It's just they're shorter ones. 
Okay. So, and by the way, a couple of these questions are not very good either, but the answers are nearly always good, so I keep them in. <laughs> so the first one is, what's the best advice you can remember ever receiving? Uh, wow. That's good. That's, uh, what is the best advice? I've gotten so much advice um, that uh, it, something does not need to be repeatable or scalable when you're trying to figure it out. Re I got that from uh, an entrepreneur boss I had who we were starting. I, I was, we were starting a company and I was at looking, bu budgeting things out to build it to last. And he's going, what are you doing? And I go, we can't. He goes, just do it this way. And I go, if we do it that way, we're going to lose money on every single order. And he said, who cares? But we're going to find out if this is a viable business or not. And if it is, then we'll invest your mo the money you're proposing and make it repeatable and scalable. But right now, we can find out for a fraction of that whether it actually works or not. Mm. And wow, that took that to heart. Um, and I've used that ever, ever since. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then what's the worst advice you can remember ever receiving? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, study harder. <laughs> uh, I've always... Um, I work pretty hard, but I always work hard at the things that interest me. Uh, and it, it, a lot of the times they appear to be wastes of time. Um, you know, I was a, I, in, in school, I was a geology major. I wasn't a business student. You know, I, I majored in geology and I did that not because I was looking for a career as a petroleum geologist. I like as you learned from a previous answer, I just like being outside. And I noticed pretty early that all the geology guys were going on field trips all the time. And I go, sign me up for that. <laughs> uh, and that's what's kind of led me every place. Yeah. You know, I, I was a direct marketing guy and that was not a glamorous thing, but I found that so fascinating. And I learned everything I could about that because it interested me. Yeah. Not because there was some ulterior motive. And the most tragic thing I see now, like I mentioned before, I do a lot of work with you know, university students. And the most tragic thing is these kids who are pursuing these careers that someone else wants for them. Or because they think, oh, I'll make a great living at it. But I can't think of anything more shallow and depressing than making a great living at something you don't enjoy doing. Mm. Okay. So is there one thing in the world that you feel is really wrong or that you'd really like to change? Uh, well, I hope I don't taint you with this, uh, this uh, or paint you with this brush. I think that there's a over glamorization of entrepreneurship right now. Uh, you know, when I was uh, starting out, there was no such thing. I mean, there was such a thing and that they, people are certainly starting companies. But there was no cult of entrepreneurship. You couldn't take entrepreneurship classes. You certainly couldn't major in it in school. Um, and what it feels like now is it's being presented as this glamorous thing that they say movies, you know, the social network. And it looks like it's parties and fast cars and getting rich and being famous or being on Shark Tank or getting the new cool podcasts. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's the wrong reason. It's like someone going, I want to be, someone goes, I want to be an actor 
because I want to be rich. I'm going, you are wasting your time because one in a million actors gets rich. Mm. So do something that makes you happy. If someone said, I just love creating characters and I love performing, you're in it for the right reason. And then maybe you'll keep working so hard at it that eventually you'll be successful. But if you're not, who cares? You're doing what you love. And I think starting companies should be like that. If someone's saying, I want to do this because I think I'm going to be rich or, boy, I'll get all these options, I can tell you from firsthand experience, it is not the case. It's very rare. It requires a great string of luck. Um, and you more often than not, you're not. And so you better enjoy what you're doing otherwise. Sure. So... Um could I chuck one thing back at you, Mark? I don't normally do it at this stage of the interview, but I feel like I should. Could it be that there's probably a lot of people who are in a job who are very unhappy and they're stuck in that job because they feel they've got no other choices? And then let's go with um, your phrase about maybe the glorification of entrepreneurship. But that could give a lot of those people hope that they could do something that they actually really enjoy without so much fear and with a bit more knowledge and guidance and mentorship from people like you so that they could have the courage to start the thing they love to do. I absolutely agree with you a thousand percent. That is the right reason. Mm. I don't want you to pick take away for a second that being an entrepreneur isn't the best job in the world. Um, it, it, it's fantastic, but I want someone to do it because of the things you're describing, which is you get to self-direct your day. You get to pursue the things you're curious about. You're not working for the man. You're not, uh, you have this incredible, you get to work with really great creative people. You have a good time. You can have your own balance. Mm. Those are the reasons to do it. Not because you think I'm going to get rich or I'm going to be famous. And I'm really, uh, you know, I mentioned a couple of times now about the work I do with students and um, I, I do the work at this one particular university where two of my kids happen to go to college. Um, and it also happens my brother went to school there who's now like a big managing director at a bank. And so he comes to this school to recruit people to go into banking and I come and tell them about how great it is being an entrepreneur. And we <laughs> joke about it, that we are fighting for people's souls. <laughs> I and, love and, it. You know, he, he, he's way better armed than I am because he's luring them away to get these $100,000 a summer internship type things. They're not really, but seems yeah. like it to them. And I'm saying, come here, live five to an apartment, eat ramen. <laughs> but, but, you know, some people... Maybe if, you should Eyes light up at that, then I know I've got them. Yeah, great. Okay, so we've added a new question in. Um, uh, we've tried this a couple of times. It's just a simple one to nearly finish. And that is, is there anyone that you think we should really interview on this podcast? Like if you were running your own podcast or you were recommending one person you think the world needs to hear more about them, who would that be? I, would, I, I can find the names for you if you want, but I would find some of the people who are very young and who are not uh, major league entrepreneurs. There are so many people that I've worked with, for example, these universities who have these ideas as undergraduates and go, I'm going to try and do this for real and fight the pressure from their parents and fight the pressure from society and try something. Mm. And it may not be something anyone your, of your audience has heard of before, but it would speak to something else. It would speak to 
people just like me do this mm. and they can talk about the the experience they had of breaking out and what they had to struggle with of doing something brand new. That would be interesting. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, I've never asked this to um, someone who's run a lot of businesses before, and I feel like I should have asked this way before. So I'm going to ask you, Mark, but um, my guess is if you've done a lot of startups, you've probably lost some of your own money and you've probably lost some of other people's money but you, you don't here look like a person who's living in fear of losing people's money. Um, so how do you deal in your head with essentially other people's money and the responsibility of managing that well when you're starting a business? Oh, I absolutely live in fear of losing other people's money. Uh, I, I almost never put my own money into a startup. Um, uh, it's just a nature. I'm putting my time in, which is way more valuable than my money is. Um, and so other people's money is helpful because it helps validate that you're staying uh, aligned. But and here's an important one is the, the thing that I've gotten as I become more successful is I'm able to ensure that we're aligned on outcomes. And what happens is when you take outside money, this is no longer about you anymore. You have an obligation. This person almost, well, it's, uh, friends and family is different. But once you take professional money, they're not doing that because they like you. They're not doing that because, oh, we want to give Mark a shot. Mm. They want their money back times 10. Yeah. And that can sometimes lead to divergence of outcomes. Um, so you are always thinking about wow, I have a responsibility here. And in fact, there's a really, here, I can actually close with this brief comment, because in many ways this sums everything together, is uh, there was a point at Netflix, and it was, and I talked about this fairly honestly and vulnerably in That Will Never Work, in the book, but uh, where Reed Hastings, who was at that point, was not part of the company, he was my biggest investor, and wanted to, came in one day and said, Mark, I'm worried about your judgment and your ability to continue to run the company. And at first I thought he was firing me. Uh, but what I eventually realized is that what he was saying was this company will be stronger if we run it together. And what that did is made me really become introspective about what was going on here. I had this dream of being the CEO of the successful company. And I thought I was on track to that. But now I realize that there was actually two different dreams going on. There was the dream of me being CEO, but the successful company part was no longer my dream anymore. It was my employee's dream. And to your point, it was my investor's dream. I had this responsibility to other people to do everything I could to make this company successful, even if it was perhaps at odds what I wanted personally. And I, I could not argue with Reed that it would be a stronger company with both of us running it together. And it took me a little bit of time to adjust to it, but I did then say, Reed, join us. He came in as CEO, I stepped over to be president, and we ran the company together. Mm. And there was ego involved, of course, but ultimately that was such a great decision because that led to this renaissance at Netflix. 
It led certainly in the since I even left Netflix, Ray ran up by himself. Amazing outcomes, but it all came. It all boiled down to this is not about me anymore. It's about money and dreams and making other people successful. Okay, thanks, Mark. So, final question, uh, and that is: this podcast is called the Disruptive Entrepreneur. Uh, uh, so, what does disruptive mean to you? Uh, disruptive, in my opinion, is just basically a different way of doing things, but it is a dramatic departure from the previous way of doing things. I mean, certainly in the Netflix case, there was an established way of watching video in your home. And it was you got in the car and you drove to Blockbuster. And Reed and I believe there's a better and different way of doing this. And one thing after another, we've continually disrupted the assumptions about how should this be done? We've seen that time and time again in all kinds of other industries as well. And believe me, we're just getting started. Um, many, many, many models are going to tumble. And even I don't even pretend that what Netflix is doing now will eventually be disrupted. The challenge is if you're not going to let someone else disrupt your business for you, you better figure out how to do it to yourself. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So where can we get your book, Mark? And don't forget that a lot of my listeners are in the UK. So make sure we can um, get it in the UK if we can or on Audible. And then where can we follow you if you do, um, you know, put any content out or do any social media or anything like that? So, well, here's the book. I hope it's in focus. Get it really close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, anyway, it's called That Will Never, Never Work. work. It, it is available in the UK. It's available actually almost it's all, right now. It's available in uh, uh, English. It's available in Spanish. Other languages coming soon. Uh, there is a website, markrandolph.com, which actually has resources to show where you can buy it in the UK. I know it's on Amazon, but I believe it's on other resellers, which I don't quite have uh, at the top of my uh, on the tip of my tongue. And you can follow me at Twitter at mb randolph uh, and on Instagram at that will never work. And I'll be dispensing all kinds of great uh, entrepreneurial advice. Mark, I'm really grateful for you giving your time today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Um, so Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Fun talking with you. My Cheers. pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.